Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you are listening to How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. I believe there are many ways to live life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. I believe we can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. There are possibilities for all of us, even you. Not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Do you know what is really in your food and where it comes from? Or were you like me and just did not want to know because it seemed too overwhelming? Melanie Warner is a reporter for the New York Times covering the food industry. And in her book, Pandora's Lunchbox, How Processed Food Took Over the American Meal, Melanie takes you through how our food is processed and it's a powerful effects on our health. Melanie shares with us what we can do about our food and our health. Her book is eye-opening as she blasts open the food industry's secrets of how our food is made. Melanie, hello and welcome to my show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So for those that may not understand, why is it important to know where our foods come from? I think it's incredibly important to know because our food environment and our food production has changed so much in the the last hundred years, far more than many of us realize. So, so much of our food is now highly processed, highly technical, these very complex creations that don't actually have very much naturally occurring nutrition and have a lot of negative nutritional implications associated with them. So it's really important to know what's real food and what's highly processed, highly manufactured, um, modern techno food, you could call it. You know, reading your book, and I was talking with my 11-year-old about it, and, um, and her comment that she made was, well, mom, these are, these are food companies. Don't they have our interest of our health in their interest? What do you have to say to that? Yeah. I mean, I wish they did. And I think on some level, there are definitely well-meaning people inside these companies that would like to do the right thing and they'd like to create healthy food. But the problem is that these are businesses and they're publicly traded businesses and they have to keep increasing their sales and their profits every single quarter. So every every um, three months. And, and that's a big, that's a tall order to be able to do that. And if you're just producing healthy food, it doesn't really get you there. I mean, a lot of these companies I like to point out already do create healthy food. Um, they make bags of nuts, they have um, peanut butter. Um, they have, you know, Quaker, which is owned by Pepsi has been selling their basic tin of oats for about a hundred years. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these kinds of things that even some granola bars are healthy. There's lots of different products that these food companies are making that are healthy. There's just not very many of them because they don't, they aren't the things that drive the sales. And when food companies try and create um, highly processed products that they consider to be healthy, the problem with those is a lot of times they're just less bad. They're not actually healthy. Like an example is baked lays. Are baked lays healthy because they have less fat? 
uh, they're a little bit less bad, but they're, I don't consider them healthy. Mm-hmm. Well, and isn't there a profit margin much wider when it's processed foods versus real foods? Yeah, it is. And that's, it's kind of ironic, but the more you do to food and the more you break it apart and reassemble it together, the more, uh, the more profit you can get out of it. Um, just because that's the way the industry has, has, is oriented. Um, so th- those are where the, all the margins are, and those are, those are how you are able to, um, to create profits. If you're just selling bagged apples, there's, not, there's really not much profit in that. And, and, and that's kind of stunning because that's a good point you just made of it is ironic because they're doing more to it. But isn't it also the reason that they're doing more to it, these food companies, because we want consistency, we want certainty with our food? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, food companies are giving people um, what they crave and, and what they desire. Um, people, people sometimes, people like they're loaded up with sugar and salt, and, and those, those are ingredients that make the food taste, uh, taste really good and, and make, make it craveable. And, and people keep flocking to those and returning to those products, definitely. I mean, they're very good at knowing how to engineer food so that people will um, keep coming back and keep, keep wanting it and keep wanting those, um, you know, those apple bars instead of a real apple. Mm-hmm. And, well, and, and you made a good story. Um, there was a really good historical point about the Kraft singles. Can you share with them, like, kind of why he started and what, was, what were the consumers looking for in terms of cheese? Because I think that's a great historical perspective um, for the listeners. Yeah, that was at a time. This was Kraft processed cheese was one of the original modern processed food inventions. And it was the foundation of the company that's, that's a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar company, Kraft, today. And it started very practical purposes. It was in an era before there was widespread refrigeration, so grocery stores didn't have refrigeration, and people at home didn't have refrigerators. So a guy named J.L. Kraft, who was actually Canadian, and he wound up in Chicago as a cheese seller, and he found that a lot of the cheese that he was selling to grocery stores was going bad, and um, especially in the summer months. And also, there was no packaging for cheese. So at the end of the day, all the cheese... Um, they were sold from big wheels, and the grocers would cut off a, a wedge of cheese, and the edge of the wedge would harden every night, so it had to be cut off the next morning. So essentially, the grocers were losing a fair amount of cheese. So he decided, well, if I could create a cheese that would never go bad, that would last forever, and I could package it, um, you know, I'd have a blockbuster product. So that's what he set about to do, and he made um, the first processed cheese, which didn't really look like it does now. It was sold in tins, mm-hmm. uh, metal tins. Um, but it did, it did last forever. I mean, you could buy it and store it in your pantry and then eat it a year later. Um, so in that way, it was, it was a wonderful invention for, for people buying cheese. And, they, and it, it was consistent. It was always the same thing. Unlike natural cheese, you never really knew what you were getting when you bought, mm-hmm. say, a fresh cheddar. Um, so it became an enormously successful product. This was in the 20s. And and so that there's a fairness to the food companies that they're not totally the evil villain. They were also giving us what we want. We want consistency. We want certainty. We want to know if we go buy X, it's going right. to taste this way or it's going to turn out this way. Right. And the problem is not with any individual product that's horrible. I mean, sometimes people ask me, well, what shouldn't, what shouldn't I eat? What are the top three things that are just most horrible? And I never really have a good answer for that question because I don't think it's that there are certain products that everybody should avoid. It's really only an issue when, when um, the foundation of, of your diet is, is highly processed food. 
So mm-hmm. there's a recent analysis that was done that 70% of our, our calories, this is in the U.S., um, are coming from processed food. Um, so that's that's much higher than anyone, certainly someone like J.L. Kraft in the 20s would have ever thought it would be that um, food companies would be doing this much of our food cooking and our food prep for us. And I think a lot of the scientists, when they started out making um, frozen dinners and convenience foods in the 50s and 60s, I don't think they ever imagined that um, that home cooking would would decline as much as it has in our in our culture, yeah. and that we would be giving over that much to the food companies to prepare our foods. Well, because you said that in your book, Pandora's Lunchbox, what was it, five to six hours a day was spent on making yeah. dinners in the right. past. Right, I think that was in the 30s or 40s, yeah. And what's the average yeah. time now? 30 minutes. Wow. And that's a day, so that's not a meal, but that's a day. And that's the lowest among any of the developed um, countries. So, um, so yeah. I mean, I don't. I'm not arguing. I don't think anyone wants to go back to the five or six hour mode. But, um, but I think that uh, most of us might like to do a little bit more cooking to the extent that we care about our health. I think we need to think about doing a little bit more than 30 minutes of of cooking, and and that also includes food prep and cleanup, by the way. So it's not just cooking. Um, and there are actually lots of shortcuts that you can take. Um, it, cooking doesn't have to be a five-course meal where you're slaving over the stove. There are lots of shortcuts um, using canned products, and um, you know, there's bagged and washed lettuce now. It's super easy to make a salad. There's lots of ways that uh, technology has really helped to create food products that are are genuinely healthy that can be used as as time savers um, when we're cooking or making meals. Okay, so I have a question for you because this is something I looked up this week. We buy those organic uh, plastic boxes of whatever, mixed greens or spinach or whatever they are. Yeah, they've been triple washed. And so, you know, I'm like, do I need to buy a salad spinner? Do I not? Do I need to? Do I not? (laughs) Right. And and I so I kind of searched around the internet and different food scientists, but seems to me the the food scientists in the universities were like, ah, you don't need to wash it. What have you have you looked at that at all? No, I don't. I've never found a reason that that it needs to be washed. I mean, there, there was a scare a number of years ago with E. coli and spinach, but pretty much if you, unless you did a super good job washing, uh, maybe with hot water, which nobody ever does, that wouldn't have eliminated the E. coli and the spinach. So, so barring that, um, which hopefully won't happen again, you don't need, I, I never wash the spinach or the arugula or the field greens or, or whatever it is. Um, if it says it's washed or triple washed, then, um, then it pretty much, it's, it's, it's good to eat. And, and that is a benefit of modern technology, right? That they're not evil and here's something that's helpful because it's so nice to just grab some handfuls, you know, throw a salad together versus having to wash it, spin it, make sure it's dry, all of that. Yeah, or the baby carrots that are in Mm -hmm. packages and ready to eat, you know, you grab a thing of hummus and, you know, it's a ready-made snack. Okay, so it's not, the food industry is not all evil, but when we're consuming at 70% of our caloric intake from processed food, that's what's causing our health problems, it sounds like. Yeah, and those things that we're just talking about, like the washed spinach and the bag carrots and frozen vegetables and frozen fruits, I mean, those are, really, <clears throat> those are not what we're talking about when we're talking about processed food. Mm-hmm. Those are what you might call minimally processed food. They're things that still resemble something that grew on a farm. They still retain most of their nutritional properties. They're, you know, they're genuinely healthy foods, yet also convenient. So it's a good example of a marriage of technology and convenience. And I think it's an example of also of how... Um, a little bit of food technology goes a long way. 
Okay. And in your book, it was pretty startling. Um, I think you said 90% of the profit margins are in sodas. And that's one of the reasons um, that they can afford these huge, you know, like the Super Bowl or Beyonce's contract, because there's a huge markup versus real food is what, 5 to 30% or something like that? Yeah, well, when you it's the the point we were getting back to before when you don't do much processing to food, and you're just selling whole foods or minimally processed foods, there's a, there's often not not a big profit margin in that. So, um, but when you're taking something like water, uh, which is essentially free, and you're adding flavorings and sugar, which is pretty cheap, to it, um, your profit margins are are through the roof. Yeah, for soda, they're they're ninety percent. Gatorade, a little bit, you know, somewhere in the eighties. So that's why you see a lot of these products advertised all the time. Um, the food companies have a built-in incentive to to want to push these and want to promote these. And so the things like, um, you know, the the bagged nuts. I mean, the the profit margins on those. That's why you don't see very many ads for those. Also, mm-hmm. frozen vegetables, not high profit margins. And is that because they also, on those real foods, they have to have high quality where maybe foods that are in between the real foods and the soda drinks, right? But more the processed foods that we see that aren't really real foods, whether they're potato chips or or even baked lays, they don't have to be as high of quality because there's so many other things that are kind of keeping the food together. Is that why? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. You can you can certainly mask low-quality um, ingredients in processed food very easily by adding, adding in lots of different additives and also flavorings like salt and, and sugar. So, yeah, that's a, that's a part of it. But what you find when you start looking at, at processed food and how a lot of it's made is is that it doesn't actually contain a lot of real food or what you, you know, what we consider real, real whole food, fresh food. Um, a lot of times it's masked by additives, um, mm-hmm. things like starches and gums. Um, the food industry is very, is very good at taking out, um, finding ways to take out some of those real ingredients and replace them with cheaper ingredients, um, which are often a lot, a lot cheaper. I remember going to this food conference when I was doing the story, and it was all these ingredient companies um, selling different ingredients to the food manufacturers, and I went over to this one that had these um, delicious-looking muffins that they were, um, they were showcasing. Um, and their their product that they were selling was actually these little flavor bits that go into the muffins. And one of them was a blueberry muffin. And their flavor bits in there were essentially just concoctions of starch, sugar, flour, um, flavorings, blueberry flavorings. And it had hardly any blueberry in it, just maybe 6% blueberry. But I opened up the muffin and tried it and tasted it. And it was it looked almost exactly like um, a blueberry muffin. If If I hadn't known, I would have thought that they were actual blueberries. So the food industry is very good. Um, and you find these products in the frozen aisle, like in frozen waffles, um, some of those fake blueberry bits, mm-hmm. you know, because using real blueberries, very expensive. Mm-hmm. And so what are the, um, what have you seen as the the effects on our health by eating these processed foods? Well, part of it is, you know, the excessive, um, the excessive sugar and the excessive salt that you find in, in processed foods. Um, we know that those, those are not, um, the ex- in, ex- in excessive amounts, not good for, for our health and for our bodies. And then it's also the fact that a lot of processed foods don't have a lot of um, naturally occurring nutrition. So they're not, they don't have a lot of vitamins and minerals and things like polyphenols, these, these substances that are, that are actually very important in, in food as a, whole, as a whole matrix for, um, for all the nutrients in food working together. Um, they don't have very many antioxidants. 
um, and all the things that, that our bodies really need to function optimally. Um, and a lot of times that's because they're, they're processed out intentionally in the processing, um, the manufacturing process, or because they're destroyed by the manufacturing process, the high heat processes. Um, so, you know, so we're, so we're just not getting the things that we need that our bodies need from, from processed food. So the vitamins, the minerals, and it's, isn't it interesting because, uh, do you, what I've noticed is in the nineties, we had that whole low fat craze, right? So everybody was looking at just fat, 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 and not really paying attention to all the other ingredients and maybe going for something that had a label, right? Versus real food that doesn't have labels, but have a label and, and concerned about that, but not really noticing all the other stuff and the depletion of vitamins and minerals and nutrients that we get from real foods. Yeah. I think that's why you have to think about food. Is this a real food? Is this something that I can trace back to a farm? Um, is it fresh? Is it is it something that has, has not been highly manipulated in a lab? Was it grown, not made? And to think about that, instead of just focusing on nutrients, not just focusing on the amount of fat in it or sugar. Because when you do that, because food manufacturers are can be very clever um, about getting around that. So the, the, the classic example is um, low-fat peanut butter. People, especially during the low-fat craze, mm-hmm. which I think we're kind of coming out of, fortunately, um, people would look at that and say, well, this is a healthier product. But actually, the low-fat peanut butter has higher levels of sugar in it. And on top of that, the fat that they're taking out is actually a very healthy fat. It's monounsaturated fat. So, um, so it can get, get very confusing if you're, if you're relying on the food companies to, for, for health messages. Because they want to make sure. It, it sounds like those nutrition labels are also a way for them to market some information towards us. I mean, they have parameters and rules. But when exactly. we've been brainwashed a certain way, right, yeah. to what to look for, they can go, okay, this is what the consumer wants. They're concerned about fat. Let's eliminate that. We'll increase the sugars. And, and they're not going to pay attention to that because sugar doesn't have fat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then low-sugar products, they're at, a lot of times they're adding in artificial sweeteners, which have their own set of um, concerns about them, and there's also no evidence that they help people, um, they help people control their sugar intake or help people lose weight, um, the artificial sweeteners. And a lot of times the, the, the aisle in the supermarket that I find the most fascinating is the cereal aisle. There's all <laughs> kinds of, I mean, you walk down there and you just are bombarded with these claims like high in fiber, um, good source of vitamin D, you see antioxidants on some of the boxes. And what you realize, the amazing thing when I was doing research for the book, uh, you realize that most of those claims are coming not from some sort of natural goodness that comes from the grains <laughs> that they're making the cereal with, you know, it's not straight from the field goodness. It's, um, it's things that are being added in in the manufacturing process. So it's vitamins that are being added in, manufactured vitamins that have probably come from China, um, and uh, fiber that's been added in. If it's antioxidants, it just means that they've added in vitamin C and vitamin A, which is really no different. It's not a bad thing to have those vitamins necessarily in products, except that it might confuse people into eating a high-sugar cereal thinking it's healthy, but it's really no different from just taking a multivitamin. Mm-hmm. You know, there's really no um, extra health benefit there. Well, now, you know, reading your book and you talking about that, that aisle, the way I look at cereal boxes now is it's kind of like little miniature billboards of yeah. advertisements right there. Because yeah. you, yeah. you're thinking, again, here's where I think my daughter is thinking, and even me to a degree, and I'm a 40-year-old woman, of, oh, the, these food companies have our backs. They're trying to keep, help us be healthy, and they're giving us information. 
But it's also just a way to market because they know what the buzzwords are that are going to probably persuade us to buy that, that product. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they want you to buy their product <clears throat> instead of the bulk oatmeal or the bulk grains that you can buy in some supermarkets. Unfortunately, not all supermarkets have bulk foods. But, but um, yeah, in cereal is another one that's it's also a very profitable product, has high profit margins. So that's why you see a ton of advertising for, for breakfast cereal and also so many boxes of cereal. I went to my local supermarket here once in, in, where I live in Colorado, and I actually spent some time in the supermarket counting up the number of cereal boxes. And I think there was like over 200, which was any more, which was more than any other product in the supermarket, like more than the number of sodas, um, breads, um, crackers, cookies. Um, so the cereal aisle is uh, is quite quite an interesting piece of real estate in the supermarket. And then, can you kind of blast through the myths? Because, like, as a mom, right, you're you're I'm going through the aisles trying to get some foods, trying to stay away from those really high sugary cereals. And some of the cereals that we would eat are things that you list in here saying they're not really that healthy. Yeah. Yeah. So you mean which cereals are, are healthier? Yes. Like, what, yeah, do, we, it what is, do we do? It is hard to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think, I don't think cereal is, eating cereal is bad, but I think if you're eating it every day or your kids are eating it every single day um, and, and you're thinking, oh, this is, this is a super healthy breakfast, uh, I, I, I just don't think it's, it's, um, I think you have to understand that cereal can have its place, but maybe if you want your kids to eat healthy or you want to eat healthy, it's not an everyday. Um, it's not a. It's not an everyday thing. So there are. I tend to look for cereals that don't have added vitamins and minerals in them. Sometimes that's a good way to, because um, then you you can actually look and see what naturally occurring nutrition is in there. It's very hard to to like if you pick up the cere- standard cereal box and look at the label, you'll see. Oh, it's got 40% vitamin C, or mm-hmm. um, you know, 30% one of the the B vitamins, but those have just been added in. So, um, so I try and find ones that haven't been, and then I you can actually look and see the um, the vitamin contribution coming just naturally from the grains. And then obviously you to look for ones that have low sugar. So whatever your number is for the grams of sugar, maybe it's under seven grams per serving. Um, and then sometimes you can look at cereal and look and you know you can see that it actually looks less processed. You know, Cheerios, more on the highly processed side. Some of the flake cereals where you can actually see the grains in them, especially some of the natural cereals in the natural aisle, um, to the extent that supermarkets have those, um, tend to be a little bit less processed. Ooh, that's a, that's a great um, way. That's a great tip for the listeners because then that, go, that makes it a little bit easier as you're going to the grocery store. Okay, a gr- yeah. uh, you know, Cheerios. I can't, I don't know where it came from, right? It's just these O's versus yeah. cornflakes. Okay, you can kind of see the grain in there. That's a good way to do that. Okay. Right, right. And you want to think, well, could I, you know, one of the, the ways to define processed food is, um, I mean, a, process, a processed food is something that you couldn't make in your home kitchen using the same ingredients listed on the package. So if you, you know, if you pick up the box and think, oh, could I make this at home? Not that you would, but in theory, um, you know, could I take grains and roll them out and bake them? And, you know, then th- that's going to be a less processed product. Okay, that's a that's a good way to do that, and and I like how you say that um, cereal is just not an everyday thing because I think I mean in my house we eat relatively healthy until I started looking at our cereal and reading your book, and um, and so we've had to switch things around a bit, and right. um, you know where it's not an everyday thing and it's I mean it's still there but you know we've been talking about trying to eat more real foods and yeah. eliminating that because as a mom you're thinking okay I'm giving my kids cereal great but the other side is I know it's not lasting the kids. 
that long, especially if it's just, you know, Cheerios. There's yeah. not, there's, it's not going to take them until lunchtime. Right. There's not a lot there. Yeah. There's, so I'm a big fan of oatmeal for, for breakfast. Um, even the, the oats that are not fast quick, um, cooking, they take about five to 10 minutes to cook. Um, in a pot, and then you can add all kinds of things to it to make it delicious. You can add honey or, or maple syrup or raisins, nuts, coconut, you know, whatever um, whatever kids like. Not all kids will eat oatmeal. One of my sons will eat it, and the other one won't. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, we do a lot of eggs, or sometimes we'll do toast and peanut butter, and we just we try to mix it up in smoothies and stuff. But we've been working yeah. on that ever since I read about your cereal thing. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's a good thing, though, because it's a way of what else can we fine-tune in our house, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what are so you had a great story, actually, from somebody nearby where the show broadcasts in California, out in Sacramento, about this mom and her 13-year-old son and the changes that occurred as he went to eating more real foods. Yeah. Yeah, this is a family there in Sacramento, just uh, South Sacramento, and they, um, I, I found them because they, the, um, the mom, her name is Darcy, she, um, she went on a website called the hundred days of real And she was just, she was looking for, she'd always struggled with her weight as many people do. Um, she'd been on many diets, yo-yo up and down. She was even doing diet pills for a while. And she just wanted a way, she wanted more of a lifestyle as opposed to a diet. So she went on the site, um, that encouraged people to take a 10 day challenge to cut out processed food. And it kind of appealed to her. And she said, oh, I'm going to do that. So she um, she asked, she thought it would just be her, um, herself doing it, but she, her husband wanted to do it as well. And then she asked their kids, they have four kids, one of them was too young. So the, the three kids she asked, they said to her amazement, she, they, they all wanted to do it with her for 10 days. And she said afterwards, okay, you can get a cupcake at the end. So that was, so it may have been more about the cupcake, for the, kids, <laughs> the actual <laughs> challenge of it. But um and um, and one of so what her oldest um, child, her son, who's who's 13, has always suffered from um, kind of behavioral disorders, but borderline of anything. They had her, him tested for Asperger's. They took him to the Mind Institute um, there in California, mm-hmm. and he's um, been always something since he was a toddler. Um, he um, he never seemed to smile. He um, was always angry, lashing out. Um, she just felt like there was always something eating at him. And he said at one point when he got old enough to communicate that he felt like he was stretched like a rubber band um, as tight as can be and about about to break. And anyway, so, um, you know, they had kind of, and they'd done food allergy testing and he wasn't allergic to any food. Um, so they had just kind of given up and they were just going to continue to support him and hope that he would maybe grow out of it. Um, so meanwhile, when they started their 10-day challenge, um, they, and this was a family that was eating a lot of fast food. They were eating fast food about four four to five times a week and just lots of processed snacks. And she would occasionally cook, but it was very, very occasional. So they completely overhauled their diet, and she had to um, – she said she was fairly comfortable in the kitchen already, but she started um, collecting a bunch of recipes and doing pretty simple things, but pretty much cooking um, dinners from home every night. And about um, five or six days into, into this, um, her son – his name is Cameron, came down from downstairs and um, he said, Mom, I feel like a fog has been lifted. He felt like that something had changed in his the way he thought, um, how, he, how he felt when he woke up in the morning. And, um, and gradually his, his behavior completely changed. And when I went to visit them, it was, I think it was, this was like five months after all this, this happened. 
Um, she showed me pictures of him in the past. And to me, he, I could see the difference in his face and in, in his eyes. Um, and she still doesn't know exactly what it is about the, the processed food that they had cut out that was um, not causing his problems necessarily, but exacerbating them. Um, it, you know, it could have been the sugar that, that was in there. It could have been some of the um, artificial ingredients, some of the food dyes, um, or just a combination of, of all of it, or the fact that he wasn't getting enough of certain nutrients um, in his diet. But he completely changed, and then um, everyone else in the family had some, um, or most of the other people in the family, her husband had um, just chronic acid reflux. He was always taking Tums, and, and that cleared up after about a week. Uh, one of their daughters had constipation, and, um, and that was gone as well. And, um, and she's, she's still working on, she's lost weight, but she's still working on, you know, um, trying to figure out her, um, you know, her ideal weight. But it was a, it was a amazing transformation for this, for this family and just well worth the eff- extra effort that she put in. So I have a question and I don't, and this wasn't something in your book. So, but bringing this up and talking about the mind Institute, we're seeing this huge rise in children on the autistic spectrum and, um, and, and having Asperger's and has any of your research correlated with possibly the foods that we're eating with maybe what's happening with this generation of kids that we're seeing? Yeah. I mean, it's a really tough question and there haven't been enough, um, scientific studies done to try and get at this question. I mean, you hear a lot of stories like the one I'm relating, but even with kids that are that have much more serious conditions. And the anecdotal stories are that when um, uh, that diet interventions can um, can be tremendously helpful, and with autism as well, you hear those stories. But um, but as far as the scientific evidence showing that um, you know that the, that we know why this is happening and that it can happen across the board. Maybe it's just certain kids that respond to diet more than others. Um, we just we just don't know. Unfortunately, there's just a lot of unanswered questions. But what what is simpler so, or a simple solution in the sense of trying to go towards more real foods and seeing how that and test it out and seeing how that affects your family? Yeah. Yeah, and some kids do. Some kids with Asperger's and autism also respond to gluten-free and dairy-free mm-hmm. diet, which isn't something that this family did. They just went to whole real foods. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly that, that's helped for some families. Um, and then what have, what, are, what have you learned about like the whole gluten-free or dairy-free in terms of how those... Pro- are we seeing this rise in the gluten-free because the food, the, the gluten is so highly processed now? Is there a change yeah. from 30 years ago? Yeah, I know. Also a lot of unanswered questions. There's, there has been a lot of, um, you know, the, the type of wheat that we're eating now and that we've been eating for the last 50, uh, 60 years um, is very different from what our ancestors ate. It's been, it hasn't been, been genetically modified in the sense of the way that corn and soybeans have, but it's been, it's, it's genetic makeup has been modified through more conventional breeding um, practices, not the genetic modification. It gets very technical and scientific, but, um, but that, but, and it's been bred to create higher yields for, far, for farmers, essentially. It hasn't been bred to be more nutritious or better able for us to digest. So there may be some unintended consequences of that scientific meddling uh, with wheat that is causing an increase because um, we know that there is an increase in, in celiac disease and mm-hmm. in, gluten, in sensitive, gluten sensitivity. It's not just that we're diagnosing more of it. There actually is a population increase. So, um, 
Yeah, it's it 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 um it's again one of those things that we don't we don't know what exactly it is about the wheat and it hasn't been scientifically proven yet. Um but there's some plausible theories out there. And then what about with the with the um dairy and why yeah. the why the dairy free for some people? Yeah, well dairy I mean it's all of this goes back to the fact that our that our biology and the way we process and metabolize food is um it moves very slowly the way our body evolves. So 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 much about the the way what we need what we need to eat to stay healthy um, has been cast in essentially the Stone Age, mm-hmm. uh, generations and generations ago. So that's why a lot of the processed food that we're eating is we're ill-equipped to handle it. You know, maybe in in um, <clears throat> thousands and thousands of years, humans will evolve to be eating Big Macs and chicken nuggets, and, and those will be uh, you will be able to assimilate them better. Uh, but right now, our bodies are designed to eat things that we were eating in the Stone Age. So this was before the advent of agriculture. Mm-hmm. So that's why um, people do have, part of the reason um, people do have trouble digesting dairy uh, and also some grains like, like wheat. Um, wheat isn't, even when we're not sensitive to it, wheat, there's a protein in wheat that we actually, humans can't digest. It's the only protein that we actually cannot uh, digest, even people that are fine with eating wheat. So, um, so with dairy, I think that there are certain populations that um, um, grew up uh, a lot earlier um, with uh, um, cows, raising cows and um, producing dairy. So in um, Western Europe, for instance. And so a lot of those people, people of, the, of descent from uh, Western Europeans, can handle dairy just fine. And so people um, in other, from other parts of the world, um, it's, it's, a, it's a different story because um, agriculture came a lot later, um, or specifically dairy agriculture came a lot later. So your heritage is also important. It is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there are a lot of differences in the way, you know, what types of diets specifically. I mean, whole foods are always good for, for everybody, but within that, there are different variances in, in terms of human metabolism individually and, and how people react to certain foods. Like some people do really fantastically on a vegetarian diet. And other people actually need a little bit of meat or a little bit of fish to, um, to, to stay healthy and to feel good. So, Melanie, it sounds like that the science uh, and the agriculture of food has changed way more rapidly than we've been able to um, adapt to just genetically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Even, I mean, we're still trying, some of us are still trying to adapt to dairy, right? Which was 10,000 10, years ago. <laughs> so never mind the changes that have taken place over the last hundred years, mm-hmm. which have been more dramatic mm-hmm. than, you know, it's been the most dramatic change in a hundred years since the dawn of agriculture 10,000 years ago. Well, and in your book, you, uh, you reference um, Joe Hiblin, the acting chief of nutritional neurosciences at the mm-hmm. NIH, and he calls the rise of the soybean oil the greatest, single greatest, most rapid dietary change in the history of Homo sapiens. Yeah, yeah. And why is that so significant for the listeners who are listening? Why is it so important to understand that that's a huge change in in our diets? Yeah, well, fat actually is, I mean, for all its demonization in recent decades, it's, it's a tremendously important, it plays a tremendously important role in our, in our diets. Um, 70% of our brains are, are made up of fat and there's fat in, in every cell. It helps create the cellular membranes. So the type of fat that we eat is incredibly important. And 
soybean oil is something that um, is a, a modern industrial creation. We started producing it here in the U.S. in the 30s. And since then, it's basically taken over our diets, completely colonized everything that's um, most of the, the fat that's used in processed food is either soybean oil or some other type of vegetable oil. At one point, soybean oil was like 85% of all the added fats in our diet was soybean oil. Not, now it's about 65%. So it's in a, a lot of products you see at the supermarket, and it's in um, fryers used to fry food at, at chain restaurants. And the reason this is a problem is because it's a very particular type of oil. We've never really consumed vegetable oil throughout human history in an isolated form. Usually when we were getting vegetable oil, it was within seeds or nuts or within a whole food. The only kind that was really consumed in any quantity was olive oil. Um, mm -hmm. So now we're able to consume all this, this vegetable oil that's being you know squeezed out of um, things like soybeans and refined and processed and bleached. And um, it's a fundamentally different type of oil. It's, it gets into the, some of the science and the chemistry of oils, but basically people have heard of omega-3s and omega-6s. Well, soybean oil and other vegetable oils like corn oil are extremely high in omega-6. And um, it's skewing the balance of omega-3s to omega-6s. So we're just getting a ton of omega-6s in our bodies, and this is causing a whole range of, of health problems, not the least of which is, is inflammation leading to heart disease. Ooh. So that's why Joe Hiblin um, is so concerned about it. And we're, I mean, we went through this craze again in the 90s of pushing the vegetable oil, saying that that was better to have than to have butter, yeah. right? It was like, yeah. have the vegetables, have the vegetable oils. And then the soybean yeah. oil, like, yes, since I read your book, I've been looking at the packages and I see it in a lot of food. A lot of things, yeah. And that, that sounds like something that we want to try to steer away from. Yeah. Again, it's not it's not horrible in and of itself. It's mm -hmm. horrible when we're consuming it in such excessive quantities. And when when you're eating a diet high in processed foods, it's very hard to avoid soybean oil and other vegetable oils. And some people will still think that. I mean, I'm not advocating anyone eat gobloads of, of butter, um, but as a fat, I think it's it's a lot. Or our bodies are a lot more attuned to eating butter than they are to vegetable oils. Mm -hmm. And. And the way that that when you go in one of the things is that when I read your book and I was reading about how soybean oil is processed, that's not very um, enticing when you know what no. really is going on. And then right. you're saying this is something that I'm putting into my body. Right. Yeah. Well, you look at the, the more traditional sources of fat like butter or even like olive oil. And you can pretty much imagine how those are created. I mean, butter essentially is, you know, it rises to the top from, um, from milk and um, as the fat's collected off and then olives, you know, you're just squeezing the olives. You could almost make that at home if you had a, some sort of crushing mechanism. But when you're trying to get soy oil out of soybeans, I mean, soybeans are a pretty hard, brittle, they're legume. And um, so you have to do quite a bit to it to get, to get this oil out and to get, get oil out that actually tastes good. Soybean oil doesn't actually taste good. Um, so they have to, um, they, what they actually do is extract it with a chemical called hexane, which is um, not a very um, uh, not a very eater-friendly chemical. It's a toxic, uh, neurotoxic chemical that um, can cause all sorts of neurological problems um, for the, for if you inhale it. Um, fortunately, they, they vacuum it off. They um, soak the soybeans in, in this chemical, and then they vacuum the chemical off. So if there's any, there, 
sometimes pe- people have found traces of it in um, in remaining soy products like soybean oil, but the idea is for there not to be. And then after that, they have to bleach it and refine it and degum it and do all these um, complicated high-tech industrial things to um, to manufacture the soybean oil. And it's this elaborate, multi-step process. Uh, and these factories that that make it are these monstrous things. They almost look like oil refineries. If anyone's seen an oil refinery. Because um, in a sense, that's what they're doing. They're refining the oil. And at the end of the day, <clears throat> um, it's just one example of how the food industry often depends upon people not knowing the story behind their food. Because if you go into the grocery <laughs> store, you can look at bottles of um, of oil. Of co- soybean oil that's used for cooking oil is often called just vegetable oil. They never call it soybean oil. And um, it'll say 100% natural on it. Um, <laughs> and if you... If you know the story behind how soybean oil is made, natural is not exactly the thing that comes to mind. So, um, so it's one it's one instance of uh, uh, a little bit of misleading marketing. So, Melanie, right now, as I'm talking with you and reading your book, and I hope this this creates an awareness for my listeners as well, is that when now walking down the grocery store aisle, I'm realizing that like just like the cereal boxes. Every piece of packaging is just a mini billboard or it's a mini ad out of a magazine, but it's just in the form of a product where they're trying to get us because usually on the covers of corn oil or whatever is usually see like a corn. It looks like real food, right? And But when you know the behind, what really goes on behind the scenes, I'm like, I don't want to buy that. I don't want to consume that, right? Right, right. So, and, yeah. and that leads back to my original question at the top of the hour of why is it important to know where your food comes from? Because mm-hmm. when you know where your food comes from in the story of your food, it may make it easier to make some decisions about what do you want to put in? What are you really putting in and what do you want to put in? Exactly. Yeah, I think to have a healthy diet, you really need to know what it is you're eating. Absolutely. And, and the other thing is that, and I appreciate what you've said throughout this interview, is that it's not about being perfect, right? It's not about saying, okay, we're not right. going to have any processed foods or we're going to eliminate. Right. It's it's about how much do you want to consume and where right. else can you get things that may be more nutritious for you, your typical body? Yeah, everyone has their need for convenience and all the foods that they um, they hate to love and just things things that you enjoy eating once in a while, even if you know they're not good for you. And that's and that's fine. So it's not it's not an argument against zero processed food, but um, to the extent that people are consuming seventy percent of their calories from processed food, maybe we need to think about changing that ratio and inverting it so that most of our food is coming from real food, from fresh food. Okay. All right. So now I want to talk to you about vitamins. <laughs> yeah. Because okay. when I read that the sheep wool from Australia that goes to China makes the vitamin yeah. D, I was like, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It's been it's been going on. It's not it's not something that's new. It's been going on for decades. That's the way they make vitamin D. The vitamin D that gets added to cereal and uh, bars and uh, milk. It's in pretty much all the milk in the U.S. Um, is uh, it does? It comes from sheep grease. So the the grease that's on the back of um, on the wool, on the backs of sheep. The sheep have it to protect them from the weather. It makes their um, wool um, uh, water resistant semi-water resistant. And so that wool is shorn off of the sheeps, packed into uh, large container ships that leave ports in Australia and New Zealand. And then they go to China. And once inside China, the um, wool is scoured, which takes the, uh, the grease off. And then the grease is sent to factories that do all kinds of things with it. It's, it's used to make moisturizer and um, 
uh, lubricating grease, um, all kinds of industrial products. And also it, one of the things that it gets turned into is vitamin D. So in these huge factories inside China that make vitamin D, they subject it to a whole range of, of chemical treatments that turns it into uh, the substance. Or It's not exactly the same. The funny thing is a lot of, with a lot of these vitamins, when they're manufactured, they're not exactly the same thing as what we're getting naturally. So it's similar to what we are producing on our skin. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the main way that we get vitamin D through sunlight um, reacting on our skin. Uh, so the vitamin D that they're creating in these factories is, is similar to that and works similar to the way the vitamin D does that we produce in our skin or that we get from certain foods, not many foods, though. And do they know that if we ingest it, if, if our body actually takes it in the way we take it in from our skin? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, no, it's, it's, not, it's, not exactly the same, it's not exactly the same thing. Um, but I was amazed to learn how much scientists don't know about the way vitamins work within a, a complex uh, or a matrix uh, within whole foods, as opposed to when they're extracted and we're just just consuming consuming them in a multivitamin or as a supplement or in a in a food, um, they it's not something that's actually been studied for years and years and years. It was always assumed, oh yeah, vitamin C or vitamin D, uh, it's the same thing manufactured versus what you get in food. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it's turning out that that is looking increasingly like it's not the case that. When we, when we ingest vitamins in foods like vitamin C in an orange, we're getting all kinds of other things, um, these things called phytochemicals, which are antioxidants and polyphenols, um, enzymes, all these things that help the vitamin assimilate into our bodies and do the thing that it, that it needs to do in our bodies, and that we're not getting that when we're just taking a multivitamin or getting it in our cornflakes. And so are you suggesting then not to take the vitamins? Well, I mean, I think people, it depends on where people are at. I mean, some, some people, for some people, multivitamins are very useful. You know, if you're particularly vitamin deficient for some particular vitamin, it, um, you know, you probably need to take uh, a supplement, whether it's a multivitamin or something more specific. But for people that are reasonably healthy and that are um, eating a reasonably good diet, um, I don't think it's necessary to take, to take a multivitamin. I think it's actually, and sometimes I think when we're taking a multivitamin, people might let themselves off the hook and think, well, I'm getting it all anyway, so I can skimp on this other side, you know, known as food. But I think it's, it's ultimately better to, it's so much better for your body to get it, to get these vitamins from, from food, not the least of which is that when you're taking these supplements, your body can't, can't process it all at the same time. Like everyone knows when you take vitamins, a lot of times you're, um, when you pee, it's like a neon color. That's one of the B vitamins that your body simply can't absorb and you're excreting it out. So it's mm-hmm. actually a lot of work for your kidneys um, and it's just kind of useless. You're not utilizing all these vitamins. But when you're um, consuming them through food, there's no risk of an overdose. You're never going to get too much of a vitamin. Mm-hmm. And most of, most of what's in there, your body is able to absorb. Um. A friend of mine, she's a scientist, and uh, she was she all of a sudden came upon this idea of wait a second, we have vitamin D, which is a fat soluble vitamin, and we have milk. We're putting it in milk that is non-fat. How is that possible that we have vitamin D that's fat soluble? And all the scientists went, you know, oh my gosh, we haven't thought of that. Yeah, and, and so I mean, and and it, it's not to you know because I think there's so much to yeah. learn in the point that you bring up about the phytochemicals where the, the scientists are going, wait, just because we take this vitamin that's in blueberries, is it just that yeah. vitamin or is it a combination of stuff that gives yeah. us this effect? 
Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a great that's a great point. I mean, I'm just not a fan of of fat-free milk in general. I know that they're still like they're still pushing it in the school lunch program, and mm-hmm. a lot of conventional nutritional wisdom still says, "Oh, fat-free milk." But um, but it, it's true that there are certain vitamins that are only that need to be absorbed with fat because they're fat they're fat soluble. Um, and also, when you consume products, whether it's whole milk or whole yogurt or um, whatever it is that is that has some fat in it, it actually makes you feel fuller. Mm-hmm. So it gives you the effect that you're actually eating something or drinking something, um, as opposed to just kind of a little bit more empty calories or calories that feel empty. So what kind? Because we've we've actually made that switch. We were always a non-fat or one percent, depending on who in the house was, you know. We had yeah. we had we had the kids on one percent. We are drinking nonfat, but we switched. We've moved out of that. What do you yeah. recommend? Two percent whole milk. Yeah, we drink whole milk. I mean, a lot of the recommendations for fat-free and um, low-fat milk are based on the idea that that saturated fat is is horrible and it's something that causes heart disease and it causes hardening of the arteries and. The, the conventional wisdom on that hasn't completely reversed. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it will maybe in five years' time. But it, it's, it's something that when you look closely at some of the research and what some of the science, leading scientists are saying, they're finding that saturated fat is not uh, as big of a culprit in heart disease as we once thought it was. In fact, it may be um, somewhat neutral. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not beneficial. It's not going to help you prevent heart disease. But it's just kind of it's, it's neutral. It doesn't, it doesn't cause it. So when you look at fat, you realize saturated fat, I mean, it's, it's been the, one of the main forms of fat in our diets for, for centuries. Um, I mean, the animal fat, you know, that's, that was what, the, most of our fat came from animals um, historically. So, yeah, so I just don't think it's, it's, it's all that bad. So, yeah, we do whole milk. And that tastes better, I think. <laughs> yeah. And that really is going to switch our country who's been just bombarded with, you need to stay away from saturated fats. You need to go low fat. And now you're, you know, the research is showing the saturated fat may be better for us. It's and it's and it's horribly confusing for people. There's been so many mixed messages. I mean, mm-hmm. you maybe you probably remember the the days when eggs were bad. Yeah, you oh. couldn't eat any eggs. God e- forbid. Eggs, yeah. avocados, nuts. Yes. Oh yeah, all that. And now it's you know, most people are realized. I don't think you find too many people demonizing eggs anymore. Yes. Yes. Um. Let's see. So as, so as far as vitamins go, it's really look at your own nutrition and understand that they're coming from a, some manufacturing place and they, they are manufactured. And, yeah, and a lot of them are actually manufactured from chemicals, you know, chemicals that you'd never want to eat, but they go through all sorts of processes to, to come up with these, these vitamins. Um, it's just a very different thing from, I think a lot of people assume that maybe vitamin A somehow comes from a carrot or they're getting vitamin C from citrus fruit or, or some, somehow it's related to food, but that's just not at all the case with, in vitamin production. You blew my mind with that because I was thinking in my head that, yes, they're squeezing out the oranges to somehow make that powdery yeah. form. Or they're powdering it down or <laughs> condensing it or some, somehow. No, it's not. <laughs> Sheep the, vitamin C comes from corn, which it's a, a corn ingredient. So somewhere down the line at the end of a long chain, I guess there's corn. That's about the... the the most natural vitamin production gets. Okay. Well, what can we do to bring real food back into our lives? Well, we're also really busy, right? We don't have, we have a lot of two income workers, families, you know, kids with crazy schedules. What can we do? 
Yeah, I think it's a, it's a question of, of priorities. I think you have to first realize that um, that eating healthy has enormous payoffs um, and um, benefits not just down the road in terms of health, but day to day in terms of of, um, of how you feel, how your kids feel. Um, so I think it's just a matter of creating creating the time and making it a value. I mean, that's one thing that family in San Francisco or Sacramento rather did. Um, they decided not to have the kids enrolled in like three different sports at one time so that they were constantly running around during dinner time and it was impossible to ever have dinner together. You know, they, they didn't say no sports, but they limited it. So, um, you know, but everyone has to make their own decisions about that. And and maybe it's just a matter of um, cooking one more time during the week or cooking one time during the week if we're not cooking at all and and doing it at a time when um, a day when you actually have some time. So maybe it's on the weekend and you make a couple of dishes, um, and then you have them as leftovers during the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's lots of shortcuts. There's lots of easy ways. I mean, I, you know, we don't have a lot of time in the morning, so a lot of times yogurt is a great, um, a great breakfast. I, I try and buy ones without huge amounts of sugar in them. Sometimes it's plain yogurt, and then just put a little bit of honey on. You're never going to put as much sugar as they do when they add it um, when the manufacturers add it. So there are lots of things you can do for shortcuts and, and easy, quick, easy, quick meals. Yeah, and it'd probably be best for if if this is really overwhelming for listeners just to find one thing, one area, whether it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner, that maybe you can make one small change and work on that instead of thinking, oh my gosh, I have to revamp our whole family and, you know, 21 meals. It doesn't have to be 21 meals. It's one small things that you can change that's sustainable as you gradually work towards this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's lots of great resources out there. And that website I mentioned, 100 Days of Real Food. She has lots of great, it's a woman, it's a mom in North Carolina that runs it. She has lots of great recipes on there and lots of great tips. Um, there's a lot of people out there that are, um, that are doing this and that are trying to make the transition to, to healthier diets and real food. And so, th- so there are a lot of great resources out there online. So besides being an author and a writer for the New York Times, you're also a mom. So yeah. do your kids eat perfectly? Are you clean eating family? No, <laughs> no. I mean, one thing I will say um, is that we don't we don't do fast food. My kids mm-hmm. have never been to fast food, and that's it's partly a little bit of a, a function of the fact that I live in a very healthy community, Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a little bit of a, a bubble sometimes. So, so we're um, fortunate that we're not bombarded with everyone else going to fast food. So, but we we eat a certain amount of of processed food at home. Like um, I buy chicken nuggets. Um, I, I try and buy a brand that is, it seems more, like to have more real chicken in them than a lot of the chicken nuggets. So it's not super spongy. It's actually chicken in there. But um, I rely on those all the time. And sometimes I'd love to tell you that I'm always making um, sweet potato fries from scratch in the oven. But a lot of times I just get the ones that are um, already frozen in the bag and then you heat them up. So yeah, I mean, I definitely have to rely on, on processed food a little bit, especially with the kids. And especially since kids are, are picky eaters, they won't mm-hmm. always eat. Like I can just throw together whatever's in the fridge in a salad, for instance, and the, but they won't always eat that. So, mm-hmm. um, so it, it is it is hard with kids. But I try and limit it, and I try and um, keep their diet, you know, mostly real foods, and it's, it's you know things like really quick things like cooking a hamburger on the grill, um, just from you know from fresh ground meat, um, uh, doing baked potatoes or um, whole wheat pasta. You know, mm-hmm. these are all really simple things that they'll, they'll eat. 
Well, but and I think that's important for people to realize that it's not about doing it perfectly, right? Yeah. Here you have this real life. You understand that that the you know what really goes on behind the scenes, and how can yeah. you provide for your family in a way that also still works within your real life and the demands yeah. in your real life. So yeah. Well, exactly. M- Melanie, thank you so much for being a guest today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great fun. I'll have links to Melanie on my show show notes page. And thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us at How She Really Does It. Each week, I try to bring inspiration, empowerment, and entertainment for you. Each show has a takeaway, something you can implement to take those steps forward in your own journey. I'd love to hear from you. You can connect with me at my website at www.howshereallydoesit.com and sign up for my weekly newsletter to get insider information as well as each podcast delivered directly into your inbox. Have a great day, and I'm smiling big for you. Early morning, fog is lifting.